Today's episode is brought to you by the Vegas Beer Guys and the Sounds and Cinema Podcast. Everything sequel contains explicit language. And why the fudge not, you melon farmer? Welcome to the Everything Sequel Podcast. This is the Halloween edition. I am Michael Schantz of the How Dare You Awards. Joining me on this last Halloween movie is, of course, Tom Stewart of Lonesome Whistle Productions. Hello, Tom. You should know it's not wise to play Halloween pranks on me. (laughs) Ah, fucking great. He, I mean, I gotta say, Loomis is the the antithesis of the monster we saw in at the end of Halloween Five, using children for chum. Yeah, right. He's you know he's jolly. He's making wisecracks. He's wearing a sweater. He's got he's got a sweater and a and a an awful nifty gray coat. He's completely healed. He traded up. He traded up. On yeah, the trench coat. He bears none of the effects of uh, either his um, either his, his stabbing, uh, fiery, his stroke, his, his, or his, his heart attack, his, whatever happened last yes, time. Yes. His getting thrown through windows, his burning. It's all that, fixed. That fiery death he experienced uh, several years ago seems to have no effect on him now. Right. So there we go. There you have it. Yet, an- yet another, uh, <laughs> yet, yet another develop- plot development that uh, could have been explained through finding out what happened in between this and Halloween Five, <laughs> which the movie patently refuses to tell us. Correct. Almost out of principle. <laughs> they re- they refuse to tell us anything. Well, yeah, um, except that except what we already know. Yeah, like if you right. look, if you list, if you look at all the exposition at the beginning of this movie, such that it is, you'll see that it only covers facts that have already been established from previous movies. Right, exactly. With no sense of of what we really want to know is how did we get from the end of Halloween Five to the beginning of this movie to to here and it, this movie has literally no answers now this is okay ladies and gentlemen we're talking about halloween the curse of michael myers a 1995 movie directed by joe chappelle who's done phantoms the skulls too <laughs> but i'll give him yeah. this he's done six episodes of the wire I thought I recognized his name from yeah. like a like well I mean that's that's great isn't it that's So a, kudos on that I say That's hard to This movie hard however to reconcile although I know, I know he is. was under a tremendous amount of pressure he was in an utterly impossible position as a director on this movie completely impossible position but I mean we'll get into it as we go through the movie 
I see a competency here that I did not see in the last movie. Uh, yeah. No, I, I don't agree. In terms of <laughs> shot selection, the way the movie's put... I, it, like, there are moments, and I'm not saying it's throughout the whole movie, but there are moments where I think to myself, okay, somebody knows what they're doing when they made that shot. Okay. It's certainly wa- uh, certainly watchable. Uh, well, I think I think there this there are stylistic elements that are offensive in this movie. Okay. I don't know how much that has to do with it being a movie from the mid nineties, which is like a <laughs> nadir of film taste in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But uh, I can't let him off the hook for that. No. <laughs> well, and we'll get more specific later, but. The the critics might agree with you. This movie is the bottom of the barrel, nine percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Okay, nine nine percent. Yeah. Okay, so uh, I last night I <laughs> last night I read um, the chapter on this movie from the book Taking Shape about the making of the Halloween movies. Right. This movie this the, <laughs> this book came out in the last year, last couple of years. It said thirteen percent. So in the past year and a half, this has dropped from 13% to 9%. (laughs) By the time you get this podcast, this will be at negative (laughs) 7%. Tomato seed or whatever. It's only getting worse. (laughs) I don't know what happens when you get into the negative percentages on Rotten Tomatoes. Right. Well, it had a budget of $5 million, did have an opening weekend of $7.3 million. In the USA and the world, $15.1 million. Hmm. So, you know, not the bottom of the barrel. Well, Hall- Halloween did 5 did much worse. Yeah. And... 11.6 for yeah. Halloween 5. And so the whole strategy behind taking a few years to develop this and mm-hmm. um kind of setting the bar really low was about right. avoiding all the um all the pitfalls of Halloween 5 which had been made within a year of the previous movie and had tried to outdo the previous movie this <laughs> there were literally production memos that speak to the fact that they wanted to set the bar as low as possible so pe- so people could only be surprised by how good it was <laughs> <laughs> well, how how does one set about setting the bar low it's just it's it's you know george costanza the opposite if if Halloween if Halloween five was released too quickly and was setting the bar too high, and didn't succeed, in order to succeed we must set the bar low, and take a long time to. But that's make what it. I'm saying. Are they are they just relying on Halloween five as setting the bar, or did they try to like make the preview look shitty? <laughs> I don't think anyone was trying <laughs> like... to make anything look shitty, but I will say that. In terms of uh, counterintuitive production decisions, it's worth noting that um, 
on this movie, the Weinsteins brought people over from Hellraiser Bloodline to fix the problems of this movie. Itself a troubled production. <laughs> so, fucking... so, oh my goodness, I'm not going to go as far as to say people involved in this movie were trying to make it look shitty, but I think... <laughs> Taking people, bringing people over from Hellraiser Bloodline is as close as you get to that kind of intentionality. Well, I do know this, uh, that I don't know if this is how the subtitle came about, but I know that people in the production kept referring to, yeah, this is the curse of Michael Myers because this shoot sucks. You know what? I think I may have talked some shit about this title before because, you know, I thought it would be hilarious. But um, <laughs> i got to say, of the... Of the title... Of the latter Halloweens. Of the, of, the, of the subtitles, this one kind of makes... I mean, this one kind of makes sense. It makes the most sense. I mean, you know... Well, that's not true. <laughs> Halloween 4 makes the most sense. Okay. But um, there's, there, there is a... There is a it, you know, there is a curse here. Michael is specifically depicted as being cursed in yeah. the same way Danny's about to be cursed. Which, I mean, that's got its own big bag of problems. But right, in terms of in terms of the title and the movie having some consonants, it's not bad. <laughs> we're, we're starting off. We're starting off with a degree of uh, coherence that that will right. you know never achieve again. Well, I, you know, what do we do? Let's I start don't at the beginning. Fucking no, I don't know. So, I mean, one of my one of my biggest problems is is does this movie start with the voiceover, or does that come after the first like kind of cold open? <laughs> um, it's no, it's a. So first of all, there's five minutes where there's no music, right at the beginning yeah. of this movie. Um, we start, according to my notes, we start with a flash montage of images that may be new, old, or just retconned to look old. <laughs> um, and we're, we're kind of thrown into Jamie giving birth as an okay, as right. as an, an an adult. Which... No, not as an adult. I mean, the this is one of my big problems. The actor is clearly an yes. adult. Jamie herself is supposed to be 15 years oh old. Oh, my God. That's a problematic. Because Paul Rudd has voiceover that says it's been six years since the events of Halloween 5, basically. Yeah. And she was... Well, maybe she's 16, because she was either 9 or 10. Don't give this movie... <laughs> Credit, Mike. <laughs> you know they fucked this up. Yeah. <laughs> At any rate. And they it's... also picked an actor who looks nothing like Daniel Harris. Yeah, right. Which is... <laughs> which is bizarre. Also the fact she couldn't possibly be Jamie in this timeline. Uh, it's, it's not going well so far. I, I, have, I have other notes for this beginning, too. This is the first time we're having, like, a slam title card. Yeah. And Which I, seems to fit Merrimax more than it does Halloween. Well, I have a lot of... Well, I mean, this is the... I mean, 
this is what was going on behind the scenes because it was a constant battle between the Weinsteins on one side of the production and the Akkads, Malik and Mustafa, on the other as uh-huh. to creative control over the direction of this movie. And the Akkads saw it, you know, they wanted to emphasize its lineage in the franchise. And uh, the Weinsteins wanted almost the opposite of that. So the the fact, I think it's a miracle that you get any kind of... Um, coherency at all well any kind of what uh, little of it there is but you have a screen but basically in the middle of that you have a screenwriter who who probably know knew more about the franchise than any other screenwriter on the that's ever written for a halloween sequel wow because he um he got hired on the basis that he turned up to uh uh an initial an initial production meeting with a franchise bible that he'd written himself and he envisioned this being, you know, one of the most literal uh, entries in the franchise in terms of, like, picking up old story threads and speaking to the other movies in the franchise. And um, so hmm. it's, ki- it's kind of interesting that battle for the soul of the movie is very pr- perhaps more compelling than the battle for Michael's soul, which also takes <laughs> right. place in this movie. Yes. Well, I also couldn't help but notice because we just had our 100th episode. Uh-huh. And of course, our adventures in sequeldom started with Little Boy Penis. Yes. And our first series. Superman 2. Our next, for, for those our of next, you. Yeah. <laughs> and our 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 first series in the next hundred movies, this movie starts with Little Boy Penis 2. Oh, okay. But uh, uh, being used in... It makes me nervous. I don't want to have to start putting in my Google search at 300, like, what other movies have Little Boy Penis? The big difference here, though, is that uh, Little Boy Penis was over-explaining. Little Boy Penis here (laughs) is severely under-explained. That's true. (laughs) The little boy penis is just confusing issues. <laughs> like, for instance, who's the little boy? <laughs> right. <laughs> Let's start with that. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's, you know, it's important we know that this is the first Halloween sequel to take away the number. Yeah. Which we never get back. Well, also, and we haven't talked about this, but that's not, we haven't talked about this. This is, I, I don't know if I know another series that switches from Roman numerals to numbers. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) That's crazy. It is. It is. It's a, it's quite a, quite a back and forth. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and then. After the the also I I have something to say about the the credits. Mm-hmm. The, the the attitude towards dispersing information in this movie is bizarre at best. <laughs> so, first of all, um, the credit Mitchell Ryan as quote Doctor Wynn end quote. 
is effectively telling us that Doctor Wynn is the secret baddie of the movie. Or at least he's not who he says he is. Right. Which is something that is a narrative twist in this movie. And yet there's a ton of information here that we need to know that the movie's not telling us. And yet it's telling us the the very thing that we're not supposed to know until later in the movie. Amazing. So I I do I do not understand this uh, how this movie um uh, how this movie works in terms of exposition. Given that once we get into the the um, oh, God. yeah the Paul Rudd uh, Tommy Doyle voiceover that, that was originally written for Doctor Loomis, uh, it, it it tells us nothing except what we already know <laughs> about Michael Myers. <laughs> going into this movie. Right. Oh. And I noted that it was a like a patently 90s sounding soundtrack that um Oh yeah, I have those notes too. That could be any other blockbuster. I mean, losing that Carpenter score really makes a huge difference. And then later mm-hmm. doing like an electro an electric guitar version they, of the they, score is also Yeah, it comes back, crime. but Well, I mean, so <laughs> this movie, this movie is an anomaly to me because it's a fucking mess, mm-hmm. but, but utterly watchable. Yeah. Tell me about it. Uh, it's just—it's kind of crazy to me, and the ideas behind it. I mean, the idea that <laughs> I don't even—the choices they make make no sense. They're telling us at the beginning that Michael Myers is sort of like a kept beast for the cult of Thorn, who just rapes fifteen-year-olds, even though that's not. <laughs> explicitly ever said in this version of the movie. Correct. And then, of course, by the end of the movie, it's like he cannot be kept and he just kills everybody. Yeah. And... Which is the Michael Myers we know. Mm-hmm. But, but what, you know, how did they manage to even do it for so long? None of this makes sense. None of it. Nothing in this movie makes sense. The The... I don't really have much of a problem about Michael being part of the the cult of Thorn. Mm-hmm. It's how ornamental it makes him feel, right? Like he see, like you said, you said, you know, they keep him like a like a man beast. It feels more to me like he has a janitorial position within this cult. <laughs> He's just kind of wandering the hallways, checking yeah. in, emptying the trash cans. Uh, you know, it's really strange. And do you have any recyclables? <laughs> the, the this, and I realize part of it is I think there's so much evil in this movie for Michael to contend with mm-hmm. that he's immediately eclipsed as a as a threat, as a villain. Because you know you have you have. Uh, the Man in Black and and the Cult of Thorn and the Cult. Of you have Thorn. John Strode, who in his own mm-hmm. way is the villain of the movie. Oh, I'll say Barry Sims, who represents the evils of American media. 
mm-hmm. uh, through the kind of shock jock. Um, uh, once fad. again, I think we mentioned this in, in our ranking, but like, boy, does this movie ever announce it's in the mid 90s. Right. With that character. Um, so he kind of gets lost in the middle of that. And to speak to what you were also saying about, you know, once they lose control of him, he seems to exclusively only kill the the other bad guys in the movie. Mm-hmm. So he's right. kind of, re- it's a complete reversal where he becomes the hero because he's killing all the villains. All the people you're supposed to hate in the movie, he... He, do- he does in. Yeah. Um, so it's a strange use of Michael Myers. Um, right, right. Throughout yeah. the movie, and that's, I think... Well, and it's weird because the movie is bookended with these choices, but tries to kind of eliminate all that in the second act to have it just be a regular Halloween movie where he's in Haddonfield and killing people. Yeah, and I think a lot of that was... Um, Daniel Ferran's script went through ten drafts before filming. That and was then yeah, that that makes sense. And was then uh, large parts of it were rewritten during filming and post production. Um, so you can sort of see the the remnants of a movie that is trying to return to the starting point of the series by having Tommy Doyle return from the original Right, movie, exactly, yeah. By putting the other members of the Strode family back in. Back in the house, right. Um, and having that kind of con- that kind of uh, continuity. Um, but it all, you know, it all gets lost because his script was uh, absolutely butchered from start to finish. And he wanted to do... I mean, also, this movie... Re-centers. Was the Cult of Thorn shit? Was that all in his original draft? Well, that was. I mean, again, that was his knowledge of was the. He... That was his knowledge of the franchise, right? So was he, he. I mean, he picking up on that from the fifth movie. He was picking up on the cult on the tattoo from the from the fifth movie, okay. and the um, the druid cult from Halloween three. Three. He okay. wanted to merge both of those elements, put bring those back into into the four, and. You know, he pretty much almost gets there. Um, that's kind of exactly how it it plays out. Uh, also, you know the the re- the resurrection of the computer motif. You know, a cult, mm-hmm. cult of thorn CD ROM. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but apparently, Ferrans actually wanted um, to go even further, and and when they were watching TV in this movie, he wanted it to be Halloween three that they were watching. Oh wow! So it would be like the mirror effect of Halloween mirror three, image. where they're watching yeah. Halloween, and that would have happened if, if the Weinstein's weren't cheap about licensing the rights from Universal Pictures, which wow. they flatly refused to do, and they got like a a, a public domain copy of uh, Phantom of the Opera instead. That's amazing. So all like like all those I think that what you're talking about that second act reversion to what we know of as Halloween is like mm-hmm. that you know that base of the script kind of rearing itself almost. Right. Um well cuz because like you said we start with Jamie giving birth to a child. Right. Apparently in this cult there's one good nurse. 
who, you know, tries to let her escape. Mm-hmm. And this is when they're like, all right, Michael, <laughs> go get her. And this is another, this is another like, narrative twist that that they blow early on. Because where else could this be but Smith's Grove? Mm-hmm. Everyone in the everyone there is some kind of hospital worker even the guy who's smoking outside in his um raincoat rain slicker right it's like aren't we supposed to be playing down the fact that this is some kind of a hospital because that would obviously <laughs> mean it was smith again like the movie is right. like blowing its load when it comes to narrative twists <laughs> and yet we're we're in a you know we're in a perpetual state of confusion about what's actually happening and how we came to be here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I you know, there's just not really another way to look at it. It's funny to me that we're talking in terms of like how confusing and confused the movie is itself. Yeah. Uh, and yet I have so much affection for this movie. There's a lot of stuff that I like. I tell you what, why don't we take our first break and then we'll, let's come back and we'll, we'll dive deeper into Halloween, the curse of Michael Myers. Sound good? Uh, sure. Yeah. I, 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 I can't wait to see, I can't wait to, I can't wait to see the Weinsteins lowering the tone of this movie. <laughs> right. Right after this. I like to think I know something about beer. But nowadays, even I get overwhelmed when confronted by the exhaustive selection of craft beers they have at bars, breweries, and even grocery stores. Back in the day you had one, maybe two craft beers to choose from, and if you were confused, you ordered a Guinness. But in beer stations like San Diego, the craft beer options lately are in double, sometimes even triple, digits. So what's a beer drinker to do? You need what I need, the Vegas Beer Guys. Your beer of choice should be a perfect blend of malt and hops. And so a live show about beer needs that same balance. And the Vegas Beer Guys matches beer expert Dan Aker with self-proclaimed beer novice Stephen J. Weiss. The results are eminently drinkable. They're on Facebook. They're on Instagram. They'll try new beers. They'll tell you about beers. Think of them as your beer sherpas guiding you up a foamy-headed mountain to reach the peak of your pint. God, I need a beer. And we are back, ladies and gentlemen. Tom and I are here discussing Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers, the Joe Chappelle film. All right, Tom, where do we go from here? I mean, there's sort of an elephant in the room that you and I have previously discussed. Which is? Do we bring up the fact that there are two versions of this movie, or do you want to save that for later? Let's talk about. Should we talk about that at the end and see what we think about the theatrical version? Okay. Because I think it's all going to be comparative. That's true. And I don't want to give away too much of how I feel about either version at this all right. point. 
Um, in our in our theatrical released version, Jamie yes. of course escapes and she gets to a bus depot and then she fakes Michael out and. I have nothing but questions. I know. About this bus station. <laughs> so many questions. I don't really. I, I don't think there's a scene in a movie I understand less than that bus station scene. In terms of why there's no people there, is there not someone working? Is there like like why For is it starters. abandoned? Those are my questions. How does yeah? Why why is it why is it why is there no there nobody there? Uh, Somebody explain it to me. Um, why, how did, uh, how did a baby not cry? Yeah, it's been in, so <laughs> the baby was put in the bathroom at night. The baby's there for at least 12 hours. The next time we go there is during the day and, uh, Tommy Doyle is the first person apparently to, to go into ba- that bathroom. There's a newborn baby <laughs> in and this is, you know, how far did she travel with the baby? Uh, you know, there's so many so many questions. Well, and why do you even and stop? At the bus station. Right. I guess she thought she didn't. didn't Maybe you think you're going to get on a bus, but when you walk in and the whole place is dark, get back in your truck and fucking drive. Didn't the pickup truck break down? Please tell me that at least the pickup truck broke down. I don't think so, because she gets back in it and drives. He catches up with her at the farm. At the the farm that apparently nobody lives at. Because. Is this the farm from Halloween 4? Finally, well, no, the find from the opening of Halloween Four. Oh, I well, I thought you were mistaking uh, for Halloween Five. Well, there's a farm in there yeah. too. There's a pumpkin patch in. Well, there's there's two pumpkin patch that don't really come into play, right. and now one which I, I guess is is important because in the, at least in this she version of the movie, there. Jamie dies there. Uh, in exactly the same way that someone died in a pumpkin patch in Halloween 5. And in at least in this version of the movie, we get two impaling deaths back to yeah, back. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. So, it's, it's very odd. And th- I think the, 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 the gruesome graphic violence that the Weinstein specifically were pushing for... Mm-hmm. In this sequence, which was a, a like a a reshoot, yes, because in the producer's cut, she dies in an entirely different yeah. way. Um, you can really see it come out that that's that's the effect that they're going for here. Absolutely, I think. And then later later deaths will also be kind of refigured so that they're more gory and uh, exploitative. Yeah, the gore and the boobs are back. Yeah, because I mean it's. It's really hard when you're watching movies produced by the Weinsteins not to read in the rapiness. Right. <laughs> but, like, at you know, at an early point in this movie, we see Kara, mm-hmm. who's a kind of our new protagonist. <laughs> and I'm not gonna. The, the movie's a little I'm confused gonna, I'm not, on protagonists. I'm gonna but... set up my stall on that yeah, one right now. Yeah. Um. Looking at herself half naked in the mirror in lingerie. And then 
Paul Rudd as Tommy Doyle is it's, watching her yeah, for a spying. camera. As like the button to the scene. Yeah. You've already said that at, at least we assume that Michael is now a paedophile rapist. <laughs> right. Although in this version of the movie, that's never said either way. It's hard not to feel like the you know the, the, the Weinstein paws are on this fucking movie. <laughs> Give, given that no other Halloween movies have anything in this kind of you know this sexual predator right. um, kind of you know sphere. You just you just imagine somewhere in a room Harvey things. Weinstein was saying, "What Tommy should do is be watching her in her underwear." Right. It feels like Alan Ball was watching, you know, uh, for his script to American Beauty, because it's exactly the yeah, same right. thing. Um, and, you know, we've got Paul Rudd, you know, his his debut, his, yeah, yeah, his... as announced in the credits, right. starring, uh, starring and introducing Paul, right. which is kind of undermining the starring bit, <laughs> don't you think? Starring this total greenhorn, yeah. Paul Stephen Rudd. Starring, and if he sucks, <laughs> introducing... Paul Rudd. <laughs> exactly. And I got to say, I think, you know, for, for want of any other reason that I can think of, I think he, he might be behind why this movie's so watchable. Yeah. Because he's very... He has a... He has he's a, got a hell of a lot of charisma, even right. as a creepy he dude. Has, uh, he has a ton of charisma, even as a creepy dude. And despite the fact that he has a handful of strange moments... And I can't figure out if it's a strange acting choice or if somebody made him make that choice. You know what? Even at this early age in his career, I think he's figured out that he has no choice but to play all the choices. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, and that shows to me that a, a, like a, a mature understanding of the kind of movie he's in, in his first movie. Oh, I'd like to think that. What... That would make me happy. Which is, you know, why he's a... He's never really been drawn on this movie um, before. Like, he's, it's, it's not something that he's ever asked about. Yeah, right. And he talks about, which is... Uh, I think he has a lot of affection for it, actually, from the little he said. But um, I just see him... And part of this is obviously because his part was reshot to death. Mm-hmm. But you see him... Like, you can't... You sort of see him play scenes... Especially the later scene he has with Michael Myers, it's clear no one's told him what this is supposed to mean, or even or, maybe or where what it comes is in actually the happening. <laughs> what is actually yeah. happening? So he's just playing all the choices, right. and and good because because he's a you know he's a he's, pro. He's, he's going to all... give them choices he's... in the editing room, and it feels like you know it's reasons like that. It, that's why he's still around today in cinema, right. I think. Right. And some of the other people in this movie are are maybe not. <laughs> That's funny. Well, I think it's right about this time that we finally see uh, Dr. Samuel Loomis. Yes. Donald Pleasance is Talking back. to the radio. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Talking back to the radio. <laughs> yeah, and I've already said it all. It's crazy. I want to know what ha- what's happened in these past few years. Because apparently it's a lot. It's an entirely different human. Right. He he, uh, seemed, he seems to uh, his heart attack seems to have calmed him down. Well, that's I guess you know you survive death twice minimally. I was going to say maybe I think that under, maybe that really I changes think you're you. Maybe that... the number of times he survives death. 
Maybe, maybe you know that burned, thrown through a window, has a heart attack. I mean, come on. Maybe you know. I I guess if I was if if I'd been if I'd been dead that many times, I would have a renewed appreciation for life. You could could probably go for the surprise ending. Samuel Loomis is Michael Myers. (laughs) (laughs) He can't die. Uh. Yeah. Um and it's I wouldn't say it's I wouldn't say it's a nice send-off, but I I guess it's nice to see him having fun, especially in like a such a surreal movie as this. Mm-hmm. He he you know, if, if ever there was a time to just sort of have a bit of fun. It's, it's now. now. And he sort of He's not the same manic Dr. Loomis. He's kind of comatose no. as he's walking through the town. He's true. And he's, the actor himself is very close to he death. Is, I mean, yes. we can't. I mean, he died you can't shortly un- after You can't this movie. sort of understate and, right. that. Um, but he. But the whole movie and the, the, the character himself has that feeling, but I'm not sure that the movie suffers for it. What do you. No. I don't. No, okay. not at all. I mean, it, it 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 had gotten so ridiculous, right, right. Because because rather than because Halloween Five, instead of like pulling back from the end of Halloween Four, where he pulls a gun on a child, right. decides to play the double down and play the entire movie like a man who would happily pull a gun on, on a everybody child at any yeah. given moment, right? Um, so I like the fact that for whatever reason, and we'll never know. Uh, he's, he's found mellowed. some zen in his yeah, life. He's, he's centered. <laughs> so I, 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 um, I like that, and I like that they're leaning into the more sort of comic pantomime aspects of the character. Like again, doubling down on him, jump scaring into shot every time he appears yeah, right. to a ridiculous degree, mm-hmm. a ridiculous and hilarious degree. It's really funny. There's a movie in the early '80s, which was an uh, like a an anthology compilation of horror movie clips called Terror, Terror in the, the Isles. Isles yeah. You know Terror, yeah. And the framing narrative is like you is the theater. As a matter of fact, this. uh sorry to interrupt. No, no, no. The Halloween four Blu-ray disc has that entire movie, and that movie has oh, Donald Pleasance as yes. a narrator. No, I was yeah, I was gonna say. So he's one of the many horror movie stars who pop up. Yeah, and it's like it's exactly the same shtick of he's surprising everyone in the audience, kind of jump scaring into shots. Right. So this is I like to think of this is this is terror terror in the aisles, Donald Pleasance. Yeah, exactly. Right. Playing Loomis. Right. That's my, my that's how I rationalize it. <laughs> that's great. Well, then we uh, then we have to meet the Strodes after this. Well, I, well, I, oh boy, do we meet those strokes. Should we give any play to like Danny before we meet the strokes? When we when we find Dr. Loomis, we also do meet oh. Dr. Wynn. Well, this is interesting. I mean, is it just me or the second you have an actor like Mitchell Ryan show up? Don't you say to yourself, oh, he's the fucking man in black, that guy. Yeah, if if the if his if his credits in the titles didn't give it away, right? 
the the casting of a big star in this seemingly unimportant role gives Sam, it Sam, I want you to come back to Smith's Grove. I love that, like, Loomis looks like he's on his, on death's door. The last yes. doctor, Pataki, that we knew was like, get the fuck out of my life forever. And this guy's like, Sam, we need you. It's so interesting because as we, as anyone listening to this pod, anyone who's listened to a lot of this podcast will know, I have a habit of mistaking <laughs> actors from sequels. I'll say. Characters, no, specifically characters from yeah. sequels as people who were in the original and are now returning. I've sort of become so jaded with that. I assumed that Dr. Wynn, this is his first appearance. No, he's in Halloween. Doctor, there is a scene with Dr. Wynn in Halloween. He's like a bit part character in that movie. And that's what Daniel Ferrans was like. Well, who could the man in black be? This guy makes as much sense <laughs> as anything wow, else. Wow, not even I remembered that. No, I mean, he's in, uh, he is in literally like, half a scene quarter but it's of not scene. mitchell ryan is it no no it's not okay. mitchell ryan no i know it's still ridiculous that we sh- we're supposed to but uh that we're supposed to invest so much in this character that we really just met now right. as you know for him to be like you know it's not a 10 minute scooby-doo episode <laughs> you know when you meet right. you meet the you meet the fairground owner at the beginning and then at the end you're surprised because the fairground owner is the monster <laughs> it's like it's like a it's a 2 hour movie in which, like a one and a half hour movie in which he barely appears and we're all supposed to be flabbergasted when it turns out to be yeah. him whereas you know it doesn't really make sense that the man in black predates the character of Dr. Wynn. <laughs> I don't think you can pull that That's amazing. trick on the audience, That's right? Great. If, if the if the mystery version of the character lasts longer than the actual character. Uh yeah. Even Minnie Blankenship is an a character who's from a previous movie. What? She's talked about in Halloween 3. She's who Harry Grimbridge is going to meet. Wow. Before he died. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on. I, I want to talk about this Strode <laughs> Yeah, the Tell Strode me family. Your thoughts and feelings. <laughs> well, this is a darker Strode. version of American family life than we've seen before. Yes. Um, it made me think that we don't really need a serial killer in this movie right. to to get a genuine psychopath in the form of John Strode. <laughs> I gotta tell the you, though, worst... like, the absolute worst person, worst character, but I really like the acting from, like, both him yes. and Mom. Like, I, I he's, they're great. He, he's very committed. Oh, man. He even has moments of... He has moments of when he's going to call her son a little bastard. He has a moment of pause, like, this is something I shouldn't say. And then he looks at the child and he goes, the little bastard of yours. Kind of like he kind of just pushes it through his teeth because he can't help himself because he's that big a piece of shit. It's a wonderful piece of acting to me. I love it. Yeah. Um... It's interesting, like, in terms... There's a few things in this movie that are, like, 
unfortunate foreshadows of later Halloween sequels. And I think, again, I think Rob Zombie liked this idea that the Strode family are a piece of uh-huh. shit. And that that, and that it's fine here because it has no connection. Yeah, that's to what my, he like gleaned it, onto. Yeah, he did. He gleaned onto that as the reason why Michael would be so fucked up. But I, it's good. It, wor- it kind of works here because it's a change of pace from, you know, uh, benign but negligent parenting to actively abusive parenting. Yeah. <laughs> but again, I think the biggest problem is it sort of dilutes the, it dilutes the evil once more. Right. Evil is in, in, in literally everywhere in this movie, apart from in Michael Myers. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, it's, <sighs> I think with a little, with no, a little bit, a lot of finessing, this could have been a really interesting way to go with the storyline, but not enough of this idea of why this, how the fa- how the family are in this house and do not know major parts of their own family's history that happened in this house, except right, John. Except for him. Makes literally no sense. I can't get past that. <laughs> I think with finessing, this is a great idea of a like a new, like a new but familiar family to focus on. Yeah, no, I do too. It works really well, but I think they fudge it like everything else in this well, movie. Okay, right. This is a the big fudge is that only John knows, and that none of them have. They, none they of have them, no clue. There's literally so many ways that they could, they have could found know, out. right? <laughs> yeah, the the neighbors coming over and go. Oh, by the way, that's the well, serial I mean, killer house. We meet them. You remember your own family history, right? right? We meet them by <laughs> the children sitting behind trash cans as he's chopping down a Michael Myers sign that's been planted in his own lawn. Yeah. Like this might bring up questions. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. Right. Yeah. Or like and then you I said, think the neighbors to... might say, "Hey, pretty brave of you to go into this house." Right. Uh, yeah. So it's... It's problematic, but yeah, I, I, it definitely, for a, I think it, it gives you that... What it does do that's really successful... These are all qualified statements. <laughs> um, it gives you that that fuzzy feeling you want from a Halloween. Because you get to go back to the Myers house, you get to see the Halloween decorations, you get to do the, you know, the Halloween, Hadfield Halloween subtitle. Right. So just by going, just by following this family for a little bit, you kind of get the, you get that pumpkin spice uh, Halloween feel (laughs) that you want, that you want from these movies and that, that certain producers on this movies wanted far more of than they got. So I'm grateful for that. All right, yeah. Um, and I'm also I'm also grateful that it that it takes a little bit of a darker turn. I just think it's it's so he he's so ridiculously unsympathetic and entirely dysfunctional that it compromises the other villain in the right. movie. <laughs> <laughs> but it gives you a cheering moment when his head explodes. 
Yeah, which is again like uh, uber violent, uber violent uh, body horror that of a level we haven't seen in this in this franchise, franchise right. so far. Well, and um, uh, this is also about the time we're kind of introducing this idea of Haddonfield not participating in Halloween. Which is weird, was foreshadowed in Halloween 5. Yeah. When, um, is it Tina who said they should ban Halloween in this town? Mm-hmm. Or Rachel? One of them said that. Yeah. At one point. And obviously, <laughs> like, yeah, obviously the Halloween screenwriters were like, that's a really good idea. <laughs> Let's do it. Uh, yeah. Um, what's the obsession with mid-90s movies and overlighting the foreground? <laughs> I don't know. I don't need to see the dust in the air. Right. I tell you, uh, I recently... I've been on a 1995 kick recently. Well, we watched and uh, Desperado recently. That's true. Uh, and Golden Eye and right. Get Shorty and what and Crimson Tide, and I tried watching The Usual Suspects, which I've a movie I've always enjoyed, and I actually found it unwatchable this time, precisely because the foreground was so overlit. It's not. It's and now not I him, know Spacey. That too, and the fact that you know, the best part of the movie is the twist, and if you know the twist, it's kind of been diminishing returns for a rewatch. Um, I just, uh, I just thought, and then I watched this and thought, oh, this is obviously a problem stylistically at the Interesting. time. They, 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 something um, that was happening in all the film schools. This is what you got to do. Yeah, because you get that kind of dust in the air effect, which is cool but pointless right. and distracting. <laughs> <laughs> so it's counterproductive to me. Well, we also, uh, what do you think of Mom's death? Uh oh, she's she gets, gets uh, axed. she gets wash washed, doesn't she? No, her clothes her get clothes washed. get washed, but she gets axed. Right. Um, this is one of those moments where I see good filmmaking, where she sees him drops the basket of clothes she has. She goes down the steps, and she's you know th- another mm. big thing in horror movies. Everybody's always drying their sheets outside with on on clotheslines as opposed to the dryer that's in the actual basement of their house. But, okay. Yes. Uh, well, All, all yeah. horror movies have a clothesline outside, but... That's interesting. But, uh, you know, of course, Michael, crafty Michael Myers pretty shitty, could predict where she was going to crawl to and was behind a sheet ready with the axe. Did, this is something they do logistically explain because that... Uh, the uh, the washer and the dryer are pieces of That's shit. That's true, because of John Strode. <laughs> <laughs> because he's let the that real monster to his of family. this movie. Yes, the, he, really he is. is the real monster. Loomis is Loomis is a good guy yeah. now, so you can't go to him. <laughs> Doctor Wynn is very polite, you know. Until he's, he isn't. Yeah. Oh, it's great. Um, but that's good. I mean, we are getting into the the more Halloween-ish part of this movie. We are, and I think we've, well, we've semi-neglected to talk about the fact that the the real framing narrative for this movie is a radio call-in yeah. show. Um, followed by a live uh, 
broadcast outdoor broadcast of the Barry Sims show, mm-hmm. um, the shock jock in question from Haddonfield on Halloween. That's really as close to a driving force as this movie's narrative gets. Yes. Yeah. Um, and you know, historically, as you've alluded to, historically, it's very interesting because in this movie in the mid '90s, you have both radio and the beginnings of the internet. Mm-hmm. Like you see Tommy Doyle on the internet on a website that has information about Michael Myers yeah. on it, and yet this movie is so locked in mid '90s thinking that there are impressions of Beavis predict, and Butthead. <laughs> it, it couldn't predict. Yes, but it couldn't predict that internet would make radio obsolete (laughs) that's great that literally one would eclipse the other to the point where howard stern is now an internet personality not a radio personality um and i just think that that's like a fascinating time capsule of how we thought about the internet in the beginning versus how it is now but halloween resurrection will rectify (laughs) that yeah it will in a big way we're going to have to wait a while, a while though, Tom. Let's t- let's take another break and then we'll come back and we'll finish up talking about Halloween, the curse of Michael Myers. And Barry Sims. And Barry Sims, of course. <laughs> what a piece of shit. Right after this. If you like podcasts like I do, boy, do I have a treat for you. You need to stay on target and check out the Sounds and Cinema podcast. Listen as your host, sound designer and music creator, Tony Parham, and co-host, musical performer and sound lover, Derek Hansen, D-Rock if you're nasty, and I am, discuss all things sound related to film, television, stage, and theatrical productions. They discuss environmental sounds, bioacoustics, dialogue, the nature of communication through sound. But as an added bonus, they drink beer and try to... Stay on target. Find them wherever you get your podcasts and listen to the pure mania of a man who can charitably be described as Doug, the dog from Up, and another man with a soothing and sultry voice trying to get that man to... Stay on target. That's the Sounds and Cinema Podcast. Tune in and listen to the sounds they are creating just for you. And we are back once again, ladies and gentlemen. Tom and I are here finishing up the 9%. Dropping from 13%. Halloween, in the curse. Sometime in the past year. Oh, Michael Myers. <laughs> Twenty. I think COVID just killed any appreciation for this movie. That's funny. Uh, so, I mean, we got a lot to talk about. Oh, yeah. Narratively, in the theatrical release, there's just so much nonsense that happens at the end of this movie. Right. And then, of course, we need to kind of talk about this producer's cut. Right. And what a fucking uh, wrench that throws in this story and sort of the legacy of this movie within the series itself. Absolutely, yeah. It's crazy. It is crazy. Because um, as it's... you were saying, within this story, uh, 
what's her name? Kara. Jamie? No. Kara Strode. Her brother? Yes. Who's her brother? Oh. John? Is it John? Bradford English? And his girlfriend? Because they're going to the park. Tim. Tim Strode. Tim Strode. That's right. That's right. Brad Bradford English is John is the son. John Strode, named after John Carpenter, and his wife is Deborah. Right, named after Deborah Hill. Well, so they're gonna go. They're gonna go to the Shock Jocks show. This is yeah. of course where he learns that, like where he's living, <laughs> in that moment. Just and by by the way, they're they're part of some. Pro some pro Halloween protest movement. Yes, that wants to use the celebrity of Barry Sims, Barry Sims. who we all know and is not <laughs> Howard Stern, um, to draw attention to their cause. And it's funny too because this is such an interesting subplot. Yeah, I'd love to this you to have get another more play. kind of half evil character who's not evil. He's just a dick. Barry Sims. Right. Yeah. And... He represents the evil of modern media. Of modern media. And, of course, he has to die. Yeah, he gets gets, a crucifixion death. He gets strung up. He dies like Jesus. On a tree. On, like, strung up on a tree. Oh, bleeding on a child. And the tone of that death is really difficult for me to read. Because of the like the fairy lights and the uh-huh. multicolored box boxer shorts, like right, you know how wily coyote is this? Versus, it's raining, are, you know, are we supposed to be shocked? It's raining. Are we red. supposed to laugh? It's red. And mommy. he's an ostensibly comic character as well, which yeah. complicates things um, further. Further, but I, I did looking at it in in the holistically in the series, it seems to. Uh, have resurrected that deleted subplot from Halloween 2, which was Michael killing the news crew okay. to find his way to the hospital. It seems to be like... I think that was probably Daniel Ferran's... Yeah, sort of picking up that thread. Okay. Uh, I mean, aside from its historical short-sightedness... Um, I think it's a decent, like, <laughs> I weirdly find it some of the most compelling parts of the movie. Yeah, but, yeah it's funny you say that, because me too. His death is actually it's satirically quite compelling. Quite... Yeah, exactly, right. Satirically, it makes more sense than anything else than, than anything else does in this movie, because you're sort of like, yeah, I, I guess I could imagine a Howard Stern-style shock jock, mm-hmm. like, trying to exploit a... You know, horrific media event like this. I just—it's only I mean, because he Her- Geraldo did this thing every week. You know, yeah. Geraldo did that kind of like profiting off misery every week, and Jerry Springer and all that sort of stuff. Well, I also um, think it's funny that Barry Sims' his death came about because he just mistook one truck for another truck. Right. He got into Michael Myers' killing van. And and apparently the he's on the phone complaining to his producer Paul yeah. about them not going straight to the Myers house, and that was an in joke um, uh, from the screenwriter who was who pushed uh, for the movie 
for that sequence to be at the Myers house. That's funny. And and the producer, Paul Freeman, would not let him. <laughs> so he wrote in that scene as a fuck you and, and seemingly nobody know nobody was bothered about that. They were just bothered by everything else he did. Wow. Like the actual thing that was meant to piss off the producers did not piss off the producers, but him putting in quality storytelling that felt like <laughs> Halloween was a big problem for them. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, they finally do get back home, but meanwhile, you know, mom and her son, Kara and her son, have gotten out of the house, and they're with they're with Tommy now. And In, uh, her brother comes Mrs. home, Mrs. Blankenship's boarding house. Yes, right. Amazing. And she's a, I mean, her name is a callback to Halloween 3, but also the imagery around her. She's like that old lady in the rocking chair that mm-hmm. we see in, in Halloween 3. And she's a member of the Cult of, cult Thorn, of Thorn, which is based on the Druid cult from Halloween 3. So she ticks all those boxes. And again, it's supposed to be a huge deal that she turns out to be a villain. But you And could... we really have just met her. I mean, I know we've just met Mr. Wynn, but... Dr. Wynn, but we really just met Mrs. Blankenship. (laughs) And we know literally nothing about her other than she's a bit vacant. Yeah. (laughs) So why wouldn't she why wouldn't she be a villain? Her inability to hear and her sort of vacant stare because she's part deaf, that like that's the only thing they introduce for that character early on. Yeah. That's right. Is the only thing that's supposed to make us think she can't possibly be evil. See, this would have been a good place to have a robot. <laughs> if she turned out to be a robot, that would work better than it that does, it does when in, Halloween, in 3. Halloween 3. That's great. I would believe her as a robot better than I believe those craftwork guys. That's amazing. Robots. Love it. Uh, um, well, the brother and the girlfriend get it. That's right, yeah. And uh, Michael even yeah, hands they, him a towel. And yeah, it's um. But and I mean, I think we'll save. We're gonna save the the producer's cut for okay. for a minute. But did okay. you notice the difference in cuts between his death and the producer's cut and this cut? Where this one, it, they, it's like they took the frame and then zoomed in on it and then put it in slow motion. Right. In a way like a, that's like a pirate, like a pirated movie. Yeah, exactly. In a way that's unappealing. I was just gonna say, in a way that's so unappealing, it looks as though it was stolen material. Like they, they... I, I think I saw, I think I saw a, a pirated video of Star Trek Six: The Undiscovered Country that looked a lot like that. <laughs> uh... Now, what's the deal? What's the deal with the boy? He's he's supposed to become the next Michael Myers. Right. He's getting cursed. He's getting cursed. Is that why he's just inexplicably drawn to going across the street for no reason whatsoever? <laughs> An even bigger question. Does this mean Michael is entirely absolved of blame? Uh, right, yeah. If 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 he is if Danny is what Michael was, does that mean he's a totally innocent victim and we for, we have no choice but to forgive him for all he he's was done? He was beset with a curse, right. Your Honor. <laughs> like the... And later on in this movie, he makes up for it by killing a lot of very bad people. Right. 
Yeah, he uh, killed a lot of people, Your Honor, but at the end there, he was killing villains. Right. I would like to see the court case that results from this movie. Well, you might. <laughs> hint, hint. <laughs> Stay tuned, everyone. Oh, fuck. <laughs> um, so, yeah, those are my big... <laughs> those are my big takeaways. At this point in the theatrical cut, it's clear that that this this cut of the movie has lost track of Loomis's movement. Yeah, lost where track he of is, everything. where he's been, where he's going. I mean, he, it's entirely he unclear. He meets Tommy at the bus station. We didn't give that a lot of play, but he's like, "Meet me at the party later," and then they find each other when it's raining blood. Also, did you have any issue with? Well, I had a couple a couple of like continuity issues. Oh yeah. When more than a couple, obviously, but specifically about people's relationship to Doctor Loomis. So when Jamie, Jamie, like when she's on the phone to Barry Sims, of course, radio call-in show, she calls out, cries for Doctor Loomis's help. Yeah, please help me. Right. This is the guy who, let's not forget, a few years ago was using Pointing her a gun as at her and then using human her as bait. bait. <laughs> In front of Michael, turned a gun on her uh, the year before. Not the first person I'd be calling out to help them. Um, And then when Tommy recognizes him in the hospital, like I know this was a big night in Tommy's life and he's never been able to get over it. But did he see Loomis well enough to recognize him? He never by... saw Loomis. He never saw Loomis, right? No. He, but at best, at best, we can he runs we can out speculate. the front door he saw screaming, part of his... and he's down yeah. the street. He like hears the screaming, and he's like, "Hmm, what's that?" <laughs> they never met. He he saw it in now. You know... Maybe Tommy saw a newspaper or something. Is all like it. Like I well, guess. Well, I guess the... he has he has been studying the case. I'll give him that, and he's got lots of newspaper articles up. So I'll I'll give him. But they act as if. Him. But that's not how that's not how he introduces himself. He introduces him as, "You saw me that night." Right. And Loomis is like, "Oh, Tommy, Tommy Doyle." Doyle. <laughs> it, it's one of the it's one of those moments where again I think like, what would have been a really nice point of continuity mm-hmm. that would like put the whole series and perspective is fudged by execution. Yeah. Well, and there's a real, like, narratively it doesn't make any sense because there's a pretty good scene when when Kara has to go back over to the, to the Strode house and get her boy. I like all of that when she, like... Oh, yeah, it's like good haunted house Yeah, it's good haunted stuff. house and stuff. She fi- and she finds the body she and it's very bodies, suspenseful. She you know... Even though she witnessed the murders, she she's like he keeps coming, <laughs> you know. And suddenly Michael appears, and well, she heard it over the phone, right? No, what well, she, she was on the phone with the girlfriend, and then looking through Tommy's peep. Tele- oh, that's right. <laughs> she rear windowed it. Right. Right. Wow. Uh, but all of that, yeah, is no, really I agree. Effective. That's very successful, and mm-hmm. and totally successful. But then it's it's compounded with their getting across the street. Tommy is finally back with Loomis. We have the reveal of uh, what's her name? Mrs. What? 
Blankenship. Blankenship, thank you. She's just called Miss Mrs. B. Okay. So now she's evil. And for reasons I can't fathom, <laughs> Kara decides to throw herself out a window. Oh, that's right. Now, the end result of that is... Maybe the actress just did, and they went She's like, I want out of this movie. <laughs> I want out <laughs> like, of this fucking movie. Does a nosedive. <laughs> the, the end result of this is hard cut to Loomis and Tommy standing outside on the grass, but like next to the shattered glass. Mm. I feel drugged. We were drugged. They've been kidnapped. Mm-hmm. This is an astonishing amount. Uh, like, uh, you know, you really have to suspend disbelief. And we've got part of the Doctor Wynn reveal at this point, right? We... Yes, he's he showed up in the in the in the in the house. He's like, hello, I'm the bad guy. <laughs> and just, you know, not that it really matters, but. You, if you want to dig deeper, there's a whole heap of reason why he could never be the Man in Black. <laughs> From watching the last two movies. Right. It's like, there's sartorial reasons, there's logistical reasons, the timeline doesn't work at all. <laughs> he's in places as the Man in Black that he's also in as Dr. Wynn and, uh, yeah, simultaneously. Right. It's not... But you know, we we know we knew that the the man in black was a was that kind was a sub MacGuffin. Right. It was a MacGuffin that didn't take the plot anywhere. <laughs> that nobody was chasing or looking for. Yeah, it was a MacGuffin. <laughs> <laughs> it was the crime dog of MacGuffins. But I I literally cannot think of a narrative reason not to kill Loomis, kill Tommy, and kill Kara. They only need in the, the theatrical version. Yes, it sort of makes sense in the producer's cut. Right. But but well, it's, I don't know. Luma maybe it makes says is it's his game now. We have to go to him. You know. Maybe it makes more sense in the theatrical version because I literally don't know what his plan ever was. Right. True. So if we don't know what it's like a Schrodinger's cat situation. If we don't know what his plan was, how do we know that this wasn't part of his plan? <laughs> <laughs> and this, I mean, do you want to do you want to start talking about the producers cut? Yeah, I mean, we kind of we, we really must really set in. Yeah, the, like um, because, because until the end, a lot of it yeah. is just. I think I referenced this in in our ranking episode. Every time I'd ever watched this movie, until I watched the producers cut, I had made giant assumptions that the movie never gives me that the movie never actually narratively tells me and then i watched the producer's cut and i was gleeful because i'm like okay i've been right all along but is that better or worse is my big question (laughs) right because i realize it's more satisfying to me i even even just to hear loomis say yes more satisfying of the art Surgery. I... He says that in both versions. I, I he says that in both versions. I have that in in my notes here. No. Yeah, he does. He... he talks about plastic surgery in both versions. I hate to tell you. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm totally sure. Because I remember you saying that. But regardless, I know exactly what you mean. Hmm. But so I for the for like 
75% of the movie, when I watched the producer's cut, I could see that this cut of the movie was making storytelling and editing decisions that were more sober, saner, cleaner. But what it made me realize was it's not just the style of this movie that I'm not okay with. It's the content. Mm. Because... So in in the book Taking Shape, they kind of um and are about which version is better, but they make the point that there's a blissful ignorance to be had in not knowing that Michael is definitively a paedophile rapist. <laughs> and that's <laughs> right. the theatrical version where you don't know that for sure. Yeah. Like, And I wouldn't go that far because I think it is something you need to pin down if you're going to have it in your movie. Mm-hmm. Even you know, so but I do, but I do definitely think that you know you said it's satisfying, but it's more disturbing when that is confirmed. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um. So. It's still batshit crazy as a story. Right. So for like seventy five percent of the movie, it didn't didn't really impact how i felt about the movie like i the the, the issues Actually, i had i'll go as, along with you on that i mean as much was, about content as i style. found it satisfying just to that all the curiosities how i had and all the questions i had it was nice to know that i was right all along but it was also interesting for me to know that apparently that first movie gave me enough to figure it out <laughs> yeah well, I mean, this is the—I mean—the story behind. So until you so, get to the end, where it changes vastly. Well, yeah, but how we got to this point—that there was even a producer's cut—it's not really. It, it seems like oh, there was the theatrical release, and then the producer's cut came afterwards. That's not how it went. There were two rival cuts, cuts being made yeah. as they were filming, and it was two warring camps: the Akkads on one side who are behind the producer's cut and the Weinsteins on the other, who are behind the theatrical version with Joe, with the director and screenwriter in the middle. Uh So what you have is two different competing ideas of the same movie. Um, and that's really, that's really how, how it plays out. But as you said, the biggest difference is the final Smith Grove, Smith Grove denouement is, uh, apples and oranges, right. chalk and cheese, and this is to me where the you know the producers cut uh, succeeds where the theatrical version doesn't. I'll, I agree completely. And there are two major crimes for me that the theatrical version makes. Go ahead. Crime number one: <laughs> <laughs> taking what is an entirely coherent sequence of filmmaking and turning it into one of the most utterly incomprehensible (laughs) pieces of cinema. Well, that leads me to this question. Which part? (laughs) Cause it's, well, you see, you see, I, I can't, I'm, I'm trying to put myself in the position of someone who would prefer. I assume you're talking about when they actually get the baby. The, yeah. So basically you've got laboratory. Yeah. Versus Temple of Doom. (laughs) (laughs) Producer's cut is Temple of Doom. 
something sciency. Science versus magic. Yeah. Ideally, you want a little bit of both, but they've split the two. <laughs> <laughs> and I can see why you would think that the, you know, the, 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 the Temple of Doom version is hokey and old hat and like a Scooby-Doo episode. Like, I can see someone looking at that going, that's the best you can come up with. However, it makes independent sense. Mm-hmm. It takes the story, you know, like it takes the elements of the story and has a denouement based on that story that, you know, justifies its own existence. <laughs> and then in the theatrical version, we have a laboratory where something's going on, right? Something. That involves yes. syringes, green blood and stillborn babies. Right. In some kind of arrangement that is never clarified. Well, and it's... And that's all we know. Yeah. Like, we, because we've seen Temple of Doom and probably young Sherlock Holmes as well, we know what the Temple of Doom ending is all about. It's the sacrifice. Right. Om, 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 om Shiba, Om, om Shiba, yeah. you know. Uh, it's, 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 it's like, it's clear because om, we om know Shabbat, the... Om, om Shiba. <laughs> we know the storytelling and genre conventions and, and, and reference point for that. For the laboratory, it's like, well, it, it seems kind of sciency, right? But, like, I I don't I don't know what's happening. Um, it appears that Michael's there to to uh, do another rape at the behest of a Weinstein. In which version? In the theatrical. In the theatrical version. And then he goes yeah. nuts instead and kills everybody. Right. <laughs> For no reason, like, but that's also unexplained. They Bear had, in mind, they this had is him only... under control until they didn't. This is only crime number one. Right. I really wanted one two. person to say, Michael, what are you doing? Yeah. Uh, crime number two. Go ahead. And the bigger crime, from my perspective. All right. This is the last remaining footage of Donald Pleasance. Yeah. And the theatrical version decided to leave loom, some Loomis footage on the cutting room floor. But um, include his last shot in voiceover. Right. Unexplained. Yeah. Yeah, so they didn't have an ending to replace what they had with but they still refused to use the ending that, that had been filmed that is the last remaining footage of an actor who died. Shortly after uh, the movie ended. Shortly after filming, but before reshoots. Yeah. Um, And I think that's a huge... You know, when I saw that in the producer's cut, I'd always assumed in the back of my mind that the reason that it's a non-ending that doesn't feature Pleasance visually is because he died, he died before they got the footage in the can. That is not true. Right. They got the footage in the can and then they completely changed their minds about what they wanted. But the resh they didn't finish the reshoots. So they just accepted the fact that this is going to be a complete non-ending that ends with a... Ironically ends with a Donald Pleasance tribute card. I know. That begins the credits. I know. That's one of my notes. I'm like, how dare it's you? It's like, that's but what that's I wrote it. was, how dare you? 
Yeah, but it's misleading because that implies like, look, guys, we wanted to do an ending, but he died. Mm -hmm. That's what that says to me, which is not the truth at all. Right. They and you know in the Taking Shape book, they 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 even speculate it's like someone on that, someone on that production crew must have not liked Donald Pleasance, because he was actively removed from the movie for no reason because it's not like they had anything to replace it with. That's crazy though. Yeah, it is crazy. This guy that's been with you for five out of the six movies you've made so far, mm. and one person is just stands up on their own and says, no, fuck that guy. Yeah. Um, it's... It's cra- I mean, it's just, you know, and unsurprisingly, you know, it's like the Weinstein saying... This is our version of the movie, and even we have to fuck over a dead guy, we'll do it. Well, I think we know the lengths and <laughs> that the Weinsteins will go. <laughs> narcolepsy is one of the few things he hasn't been accused of. But... Christ. F- cinematic narcolepsy, yes. <laughs> um, so, you know, for for all those reasons and more, the, produce, the, the ending of the producer's cut, uh, makes it a far better movie. For, for the most part, I don't think it makes much of a difference. Which version you're watching until you get to the ending? Uh, you might have turned me around on that. Yeah. Um. I just, I think I just, uh, I think it was gleeful for me because, I mean, look, this movie was made in 1995. I literally just watched this producer's cut this year. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, we're more than 25 years removed from the release. And so to see something new uh, was a delight to me. Like, I really, I relished it. I really did. And, you know, the... the competency of of decision making is the standard of that is much higher in the producer's cut. Yeah. Even down to putting the six back in, in the title. Right. And having an opening that isn't some god awful mid nineties kind of grunge. Yeah. Shitty grunge shitty and grunge. having like a right. having like an actual Halloween style opening to the movie and Doctor Loomis doing the voiceover mm-hmm. and you know all those things that just. They, you know, that at a basic level of competence, uh, makes sense. But, uh, uh, you know, just as an entity, as a even the the move, whichever movie they made, it's got a lot of problems. <laughs> yes, that cannot be denied. So we've still got to do. We've got a few. We've got a few business to do. We've got Mask Watch. I, I was gonna say. Okay, I'll let you lead Mask Watch. I think this is the second best mask in the series. Okay. Of the the sequels. My notes aren't critical, but it struck me something about the way that the mask and the hair sit together Mm -hmm. made me think that the line between Michael Myers, the serial killer, and Mike Myers, the Canadian comedian, (laughs) have somewhat blurred. I've been as close as they'll ever get. <laughs> and then when it got bent a little, 
it really looked like Peter O'Toole for a second. Well, I did not pick up on that. And I also wanted to know, this is my third celebrity reference. Uh, for those of you who do not know, the Michael Myers mask is a, uh, a converted Shatner. William Shatner mask. Right. And I thought at the end of this movie, the mask looks like what Shatner's face looks like now in modern day reality. <laughs> That's not nice. <sighs> hey, I didn't choose to put all that surgery in his face. I didn't tell... Nobody pulled a gun to his head. <laughs> oh, shit. Okay. That's a good, that's a good mask watch. And all, I, I guess we haven't... T- well, Michael's barely in this movie in any significant way, but... Mm-hmm. Did you like how stumbly he was? Seems kind of like haphazard in a way he hasn't been before. Well, I, I liked that, like, especially at the end in the regular version, he's got a little <laughs> pep in his step. <laughs> He's moving quicker. And I kind of like that. And that's one another moment of good filmmaking to me when they close He's got trash cans to empty. When they close empty. the bars, but he grabs Kara's hair and then Tommy mm. grabs that kind of dark gun and like it's shot well, it's edited well. He brings the gun over, he puts it to his chest, he pulls the trigger, Michael falls down. All mm. of that's really great. I mean, like it gets my heart pumping. Oh, okay. Um, I like that she gets some, Kara gets some pummel time in on Michael. That's nice to see. Right. And I've got a note um, here that Tommy hits him 20 times, over 20 times. <laughs> like, it seems to me like maybe there was another transfer of power, but. Yeah, true. Um, at least in the theatrical version, there's no final scare. No. Because there's no no ending. Because there's no the ending. Movie. Right. It's just, so you forgo the you forgo the final scare as well. You got, you got mask well. and green goo with Donald Pleasant's screaming. screaming. And I got once you see the visual of that scream. Yeah. Like I assumed it was like something you know they just found a bit of audio footage from Halloween Five of him going crazy. <laughs> but when you see <laughs> right. it, like he's going for it, the screaming. Oh yeah. And, I mean, did you understand what, in the producer's cut, what that was all about? Not really. <laughs> but, <laughs> but upon reflection... This movie continues to baffle yeah, in all its forms. Upon reflection, it seemed to me that he had to become Dr. Wynn. That maybe that power was transferred to him. Okay. And now he's got to be in charge of Michael. There's that cut of Michael walking down the hall and he kind of looks back and he's like see you soon homie yeah (laughs) what I liked about it is that even when when you break it down it makes as little sense as anything else in either version of the movie but that there seemed like there was a causality to it right what I what I did like was it it seemed like it changed Loomis to Michael Myers forever but then the tattoo disappears and then goes back to Michael. Does it? I only saw it up else. here. It disappears too? It, disappear- it disappears damn again. It. Fuck. So <laughs> that's what really got me. I'm, oh. I'm totally with you up to he becomes the new win and he's Michael's, you know, oh, he's changed see- to Michael I forever. I don't remember the disappear. It disappears again 
And then we see Michael do a like a kind of Roger Moore style. Mm, yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> yeah. From behind. From behind. He does a kind of Roger Moore eyebrow raise as if <laughs> I just got my tattoo back. Yeah. Uh, and it dis- because it disappears from from Loomis. Oh fuck! And in the in the meantime, you know, I I, I don't what direction he was given, but uh, Donald Pleasance is is screaming his life, literally oh, yeah. screaming his life away because he will die he soon dies after soon this. Soon after it. Wow. All right. Whew. Uh, anything left for you? Just the briefest of credit checks. Go ahead. I've already talked about the, um, the title, the, you know, the credit tribute to Donald Pleasance and how distasteful it is, um, as of you. The outro track to the theatrical version of the movie sounds so much like that fictional band that Adriana and the Sopranos managed. Oh, wow, yeah. Who I believe were called Visiting Day. I don't remember. Uh, well, I'll, I'll I'll sing a little bit of that song. My last note, though, is, wow, what a 90s song to end on. Yeah. So that the, 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 the song from Visiting Day, this fictional band in the, in the series The Sopranos, uh, was called Defiler. Oh, Jesus. And it went... We know what we are, we know what we do, we're going to refile, defile you, get out of my way, and don't be so gay. And that's all I could think of when I heard that song. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for that. I didn't even have to think about it. (laughs) It's like burned into my consciousness. That's great. All right, ladies and gentlemen... That we've taught, we've discussed a lot. There's two versions of this fucking movie: <laughs> Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers, and Halloween Six, The Curse of Michael Myers. Uh, you got to tell us what you think. Have you seen that producer's cut? Which one do you like more? You let oh, there's us a bunch know. Of, and there's a bunch of other cuts as well. I realized. Oh my god. There's cuts that are like you know a few minutes longer a few minutes shorter so i think this is a blade runner situation wow well, yeah it's like 43 different versions yeah. probably a lot of it all right ladies and gentlemen you let us know find us on facebook instagram or twitter please send us an email to everything sequel at gmail.com for tom stewart of lonesome whistle productions i am michael Schantz of the how dare you awards stay tuned We're going to pitch sequels to this mess. Say goodbye, Tom. Not dead, just very much retired. (laughs) Good. That was the right choice. So long, everybody. It's a a better tribute than the one you get in the movie. It really is. You're right. All right, until next time.